0: You're in the Waterloop. Hey, this is Travis with Waterloop. You've probably heard me talk about how much I like High Sierra Showerheads for their incredible water efficiency, their solid metal construction, and because it's a small business based in the U.S., with owner David Malcolm having a commitment to water and energy conservation. While I hope you value my opinion, there are some pretty major endorsements you should listen to. High Sierra Showerheads were rated Best Showerhead by Popular Science and CNET, and Best Low Flow Showerhead by Wirecutter. If you go on Amazon, you'll see that High Sierra gets the highest ratings, four and a half to five stars, from all the satisfied customers. You can use promo code WATERLOOP, for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. We are going to talk about harmful algal blooms today. I am joined by Haley Plaus. She is a PhD student in the School of Public Health at the University of North Carolina. Thanks for coming on to talk about harmful algal blooms.
1: Yeah, super excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Travis.
0: Yeah. So I would like your story about how you first got interested mm-hmm. in marine sciences and the ocean. Could you share that real quick?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so actually, it started when I was three years old. So my family was living in Cleveland, Ohio at the time, and there was a SeaWorld there. And during the week, my mom would take me to SeaWorld to watch the penguins and dolphins. And I think just something from the time I was really tiny enchanted me with the ocean. And ever since then I told everyone I was going to be a marine biologist when I grew up and now I'm here doing the thing, I guess.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. That's like the power of the the ocean. It's just mesmerizing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and water and that'll pull people in at a very young age and that's it. It's over with. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, cool. So, um, I want to talk about toxic algae blooms. Mm-hmm. Um, what is what is a toxic algae bloom? I think there's algae blooms and then there's ones that are toxic. Right. Could you kind of lay that out for folks?
1: Yeah. So algae, maybe not as charismatic as penguins and whales, but <laughs> equally as cool. Um, so the difference between an algal bloom and a harmful algal bloom or toxic algal bloom is the production of these secondary metabolites called cyanobacterial toxins. Um, so cyanobacterial toxins are the toxins which are produced by the freshwater blue-green algae, um, but there's also toxins produced by marine algae like the Florida red tide.
0: Hmm. Okay, and and so what I, what causes them? What results in an algae bloom becoming harmful? It's the presence of these, these certain bacterias or...
1: Right. So there's actually a lot that we don't know about in the scientific community about the production of these harmful toxins. But what makes the algal bloom toxic is when we do have the occurrence of those toxins that we can quantify.
0: And and can an algal bloom, you know, become toxic, right? Like it, it could just be a regular algal bloom and then it could turn harmful because of these these developing in it?
1: Yeah, it's okay, it's okay. actually not very consistent between years or between different geographical locations. Mm-hmm. So you can see the same type of algae that blooms in one space. Um, let's say Lake Erie, for instance, is a big one where we see recurrent cyanobacterial blooms. Mm-hmm. You can see toxins produced one summer that are completely different from the toxins that are produced the following summer. And that has a lot to do with the type of algae that are blooming at that time. So there's different species of cyanobacteria that can grow, um, just kind of depending on the environmental factors there. Um, But you also see shifts just within a single season. So you might see one type of cyanobacteria that's growing in May, but then by the time you reach August, you can see a different type and they might be producing different types of toxins. And like I said earlier, there's just a lot that we still don't understand about what's making those changes.
0: Now, I, I, I think when I talked before, I said that when I was at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and actually at the Chesapeake Bay program before that, you know, these harmful algal blooms were something that we dealt with a lot and talked about a lot, nutrient pollution, right? Um, and I, I tried to drop my scientific terms of microcystin and mm-hmm. cylindrosporopsins. I, I think I messed yeah. up there in the middle, but close. <laughs> um, I think the thing is, though, these have really proliferated across the country and the world really um, over the past bunch of years. Could you talk a little bit about how harmful algal blooms have have increased and kind of what that looks like?
1: Yeah. So you bring up microcystin. Microcystin is like my girl. That's the liver (laughs) toxin that's produced by microcystis, which is the main harmful cyanobacteria that I study, and one that we're seeing a global proliferation of right now. So microcystis is a really hardy strain of cyanobacteria. It can withstand salinity gradients, so it can persist into estuary systems. Um, And it also is really hardy in terms of heat. So late in the summer months, you can see microcystis start to dominate um, a phytoplankton uh, structure in a lot of systems, just because it can outcompete all these other types of algae that maybe don't have the um, evolved protection against heat. So they often will be what's dominating and they often can produce um, microcystin, which is that liver toxin you mentioned. But going back to um, what makes a harmful algal bloom grow, looking at nutrient dynamics, um, basically any algal bloom is a overgrowth of algae at the bottom of a food chain. And the reason that that can occur is because there's too much excess nutrient that's present in an ecosystem and so that excess nutrient comes from human activity more often than not so those nutrients reach the waterway um, through runoff so fertilizers from agriculture or industry or even just the fertilizer that people are using in their backyards that can run off in our storm waters and reach our waterways that way. Um, But there's also some cyanobacteria that can use atmospheric nitrogen um, and forms of atmospheric atmospheric nitrogen that um, they can use to fuel their growth. So nitrogen is one of the big nutrients that we try to understand how they're using nitrogen to grow. And there's also phosphorus, which they can use from runoff as well.
0: Yeah, like you said. Uh, people put fertilizer on their lawn that has nitrogen in it, right? And to get their grass to grow. Um, and so there's some value to having nutrients out there. Um, but then if they're in excess, that's what helps helps feed the plant growth in the water, the, the algae there. Um, and what about uh, how much these are happening around the country, like kind of the, the increase? So there was a big, huge one in Lake Erie, I don't know, five, six years ago, that they had to shut down the drinking water in Toledo, Ohio. Um, And, you know, it's a problem, like I said, in the the Chesapeake Bay, and you see it in, like, lakes in Utah and uh, really all over. Uh, River, the St. John River in Florida um, is, like, an annual favorite for harmful algal blooms. But, yeah, so uh, do you have any kind of numbers on that or just, you know, describe kind of how many there are?
1: Yeah, I feel, I feel as if it's tough to put a number to like, it's, at least from my experience, it's difficult to quantify how much they are expanding. Um, We know because of climatic changes occurring. Um, We're seeing warmer temperatures at higher latitudes. So that's allowing them to expand in terms of um, latitudinal growth. So we might be seeing more blooms occurring in places that they've never been able to grow before, such as lakes in Canada. And you mentioned a lot of these big systems that we routinely monitor, such as Lake Erie or Lake Okeechobee in South Florida, these spaces where people are commonly recreating or using for fisheries. We have good data on those spaces, but we don't have a lot of data on these blooms that are occurring in just little backyard retention pond types of creeks and smaller ponds that people are actually coming in contact with pretty frequently, just walking around their neighborhoods or taking their dogs out. Um, So it is really difficult going back to your main question to kind of put a number on how much are these expanding, but in those bigger spaces where we do have really complete data sets over time we know that they are increasing in their frequency and intensity and intensity being the sheer amount of growth that we see each year
0: yeah i think you mentioned the um cyano tracker as uh something that's out there is what what do they do do they try to to keep track of these kind of blooms
1: yeah, so that's just kind of a central database where we have bloom reports come in. They use um, satellite data to report on blooms, so they just kind of compile a lot of information that comes in about these different blooms in those routinely monitored spaces.
0: Okay, okay, yeah, that's so amazing that they're using satellites now to spot harmful algal blooms from in orbit. Right, it's a that's pretty cool. Right. Um, well, let's talk about what you're up to there at the University of North Carolina and, mm-hmm. and your work, because um, it's some really interesting stuff. What are, you, what are you doing? What are you working on?
1: Yeah, so my background's in marine biology, but right now what I'm working on is understanding the transport of these cyanobacterial toxins in spray aerosol of these systems that experience these recurrent and toxic blooms. So right now my work is focused in the Chowan River in Albemarle Sound in northeastern North Carolina. And so this summer we've been running a field campaign to quantify cyanobacterial DNA and microcystin concentrations in the aerosol, in the airshed of this system.
0: And uh, why why are you at that river, the Choan how, how do you say that? Yeah, the <laughs> Chowon. Yeah. Chowan. thank you. Um, yeah, why are you, why are you working there? There's a, just a prevalence of these mm-hmm. harmful algal blooms?
1: Yeah, so the past five to ten years have been um, – They've been really bad in terms of toxic algal growth there. So the Chowan actually had, in the 80s, a really bad cyanobacterial bloom problem, and my advisor, Dr. Hans Perl, was actually one of the first researchers from UNC to focus on this problem, try to understand what's allowing these blooms to grow. And at that time, they didn't even have data on toxins. We didn't know anything about toxin production and cyanobacteria. Um, so what they did is they went in and they took samples and they looked at nutrient dynamics and they figured out that there were a handful of paper mills that were releasing a lot of nutrients into this estuarine system. And so that point source, they were able to inform the state, you know, we think that nutrients are coming from the discharges from these places, and if we can reduce the amount of nutrients that they're releasing, then we can effectively mitigate these blooms. And so working with the state, they were actually able to entirely remediate the blooms in this system. But in the past five to 10 years, not that the blooms entirely went away in the meantime, but now we're seeing a reoccurrence of this algal Growth here. And now we have better instruments um, and better methods to look at the toxin production here. And we're just not really sure what it is this time. There's no one point source that we've been able to get to the bottom of. Um, So that's part of our projects that we're
0: working on there, too. Yeah, I know that um, agriculture, right? Farm fields uh, where there's fertilizer and animal manure and all that kind of stuff that can be one of these non-point source, uh, sources of nutrient pollution that then fuel, fuel algae blooms. And that's a pretty rural area up, up there. Um, so, you know, harmful algal blooms, bacteria, nasty stuff, like, um, that they're, they're a problem for human health. That's, that's really why we're sitting here talking about algae blooms is because there's a direct connection, potential impact on, on people. Could you talk about that a little bit further?
1: Right. Yeah. So, What we know um, about drinking and ingesting these toxins, we actually have quite a bit of data on that. So we know that um, with microcystin specifically, it impacts the liver. So microcystin can affect human health through contaminated drinking water, but also contaminated shellfish and fish tissues. So there is a bit of evidence that this toxin can accumulate in, say, crab tissues. So you could eat a crab that has this microcystin in it, and then that could impact your liver. And we know a lot about the acute impacts, meaning the short term, if you get a high dose all at one time, um, that could cause you to go into respiratory distress or could cause vomiting and nausea and even liver cirrhosis. So those are some of the impacts that we know with ingestion. And the EPA and the World Health Organization, they actually actively um, have recommendations for You should not drink this water if it has this level of microcystin, or you should not consume these fish tissues if it has this level of microcystin in it. And then they also have regulation for um, just swimming. Mm -hmm. So you can also uptake the toxins or irritate your skin just by touching it. So, there was an instance last summer when we were doing some work at Lake Erie. We were collecting samples and we weren't wearing gloves. And there's a big, thick green slime <laughs> on top of the water. And, you know, in sampling the water, I got a lot of it on my hands. And for the next six hours, my hands were
0: tingling. Really? Tingling? Oh, that's yeah. crazy. So now you're diligent about your glove wearing, right? Absolutely. Learn that lesson the tough way. It's no joke. (laughs) Yeah. And so like the thing is, though, if you're a person, you're out there, you go to a lake or a river and you're going to swim, you know, and you see some algae, you can't tell visually if it's, if it's got a, if it's toxic or harmful versus just benign, if you will. So better just to stay away if, uh, if you see that. Um, and unfortunately, I know that this stuff can be harmful for pets, for dogs. Right? A lot of people take their dogs places and swimming, and um, they should be careful about that. I, I know you talked mentioned the uh, unfortunate incident near near me here in Wilmington, North Carolina, last summer, where someone's uh, their dogs died pretty pretty soon after getting exposed to this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's why you're looking at the aerialization, aer- uh, right? the, uh, Mm -hmm. trying to see. So how can that, how can that happen? What are the, what are the real concerns with, um, it getting airborne, if you will?
1: Right. Yeah. So as I mentioned, we know a bit about the impacts, the adverse health impacts for humans and pets, if you ingest these toxins, but we know much less about what the health impacts are if you inhale them. And so we know that freshwater and marine systems produce aerosols And an aerosol is just a solid or a liquid suspended in a gas. So when you see breaking wave action, that entraps these little bubbles beneath the water surface. And as those bubbles rise through the water column, they can collect all sorts of little chemical compounds that exist in the top of the water column. And so those compounds... The more hydrophobic they are, the, high, uh, the more that they like air, they'll kind of adsorb to the sides of these air bubbles and then reach the surface. And when those bubbles reach the surface, they kind of form a little film cap atop. And then when that cap bursts... When the bubble burst, you can see a bunch of little particles being shot up into the air. And those are so small that they can stay suspended for multiple hours, even days at a time, depending on how small they are. And those particles carry salts from the water. Uh, they can carry microbes, so little bacteria or algae. And then they can also carry all sorts of chemical components that exist in the water column. And so, What we're actively quantifying is, okay, we don't know much about the health effects. That's less of what our project is. But right now, we're just trying to look at what quantity are they there in, Mm. you know, um, in the environment. Is there a concerning amount of microcystin that is translated to the air? And is it extracellular? Is it dissolved in the water? Or is it within the cell? And how is that impacting its transport in the
0: air? Um, So to get real scientific how do you how are you Mm -hmm. studying that how are you trying to look to look at that
1: right so basically we use a giant vacuum that filters air across a filter so we impact these aerosols onto a filter uh, which is just a giant vacuum. And then we can take those filters and we can bring them back to our lab and we can extract them for cyanobacterial DNA and that toxin microcystin. So we're collecting a ton of little particles on a filter, almost like you would, um, with a filter in your air conditioning unit. It's pretty
0: similar. Okay. Okay. Um, and so you're, uh, second year PhD student, when, when will you finish your work and what are you hoping that, you know, all of this will, will lead to?
1: Well, I think my work as a scientist will never be done. It'll be done when I'm dead for sure. (laughs) But, um, this summer, um, Actually, the Chowan River did not see as high of microcystin production as it has in the past five years. So, of course, the year that we show up to study this is when we're not seeing toxins being produced. Uh. Um, So the toxins have been much lower this summer in the water. So that's going to make quantifying them in air a little bit harder because it's very much diluted in the air. So we have to filter a lot to meet our limits of detection in the lab. So we're wrapping up our field campaign two weeks time from now for this year, but we're hoping to go back next year and run a similar study.
0: Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, I like to talk about solutions a little bit as part of every podcast <laughs> episode. Um, and you've touched on this, uh, I think already, but, um, what are some of the ways to reduce and prevent algal blooms? Um, you know, I, I obviously there's the point source and the non-point source, you know, Uh, But but also there's personal behavior, residential behavior stuff. So could you talk a little bit about ways to that that we collectively could work on reducing algal blooms?
1: Well, I think the first thing that you could do as a homeowner is strategically fertilize your lawn. So if you fertilize your lawn and then you immediately water it. That fertilizer hasn't had time to soak into your soil and actually interact with your grass. So you're just flushing all of that out immediately and sending it into your drains and your stormwater. So if you're going to fertilize your lawn, make sure that you're doing it before a big or not right before a big rain event or not right before that you water your lawn. So that way that grass is actually utilizing the fertilizer and it's not making it to your waterways um, so that's one big way. And in terms of mitigating your potential exposure to those toxins, um, obviously not going in the water if you see any sort of green film. But it's also important to note that sometimes there's toxins being produced in high enough concentrations even when you can't see the cyanobacteria or the algae. So just making sure that you're being aware if you smell anything kind of funky that might be indicative of some sort of algal growth because when they die off bacteria come in to kind of eat them up and you're smelling that bacteria. And then of course being cognizant of those really thick scums, that's definitely not something you want to be tangoing with because you're not sure if there is toxin being produced there.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, I've, um, you know, again, through all my years working in water, I understand that nutrient pollution is one of the biggest water quality problems we have in the United States. It's really so prevalent and I don't think people really are aware of it. Uh, and it leads to, to problems like this. Um, so I'm glad we got to catch up and you could educate us a lot on all this and good, good luck with your continued work and look forward to, uh, to following it and seeing how things go.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. I had a great time.
0: All right. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. The Waterloop Podcast is brought to you by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart and stylish way to save water, energy, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code Waterloop for 20% off at high Sierra Showerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop. <laughs>